church this morning we continue our series in the book of Psalms and we find ourselves in chapter 19, chapter 19 beginning in verse 7 and um, the video that, that we were going to see and perhaps we'll, we'll be ready by the second service is a video that I first encountered in seminary in a missions class. It's a video of a tribe in Indonesia receiving the word of God for the first time in their own language. So from Matthew to Revelation, they got the New Testament in their own language and the response of the people to the privilege of having God's word in their hand is uh, humbling, it's convicting, uh, it's beautiful, and um, I, I hope we'll be able to see it later. But if you can't, just go home, and if you do Google, just Google tribe receives the word of God for the first time, and check it out. Tribe receives the word of God for the first time, and it'll be one of the, one of the first hits. And I think it'll likely impact you in a similar fashion as it did me. I want to encourage you as we come to Psalm chapter 19, verse 7, um, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me. Of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Would you pray with me? God, help us as we reflect on the importance of your word. God, to take great delight in it, to be shaped by it. Lord, you say that you sanctify us by your truth, for your word is truth. God, continue to shape your church into the image of Christ in the hearing of God's word. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning's message I've simply called the essential word of God. We saw in verses 1 through 6 that King David prophesies that the glory of God, which is forever recounted in the heavenlies and shown in the first pages of the story of creation, that it's a glory that one day is going to be known worldwide in all the earth, in every language, that this gospel is going to make it to the ends of the earth. And, and this is important because unless we know that God is creator and that we've fallen short of His glory and that we deserve death, we don't, we don't have an opportunity to respond to the gospel. So we, we get the good news that the gospel's going to go forth in verses 1 through 6. There is this Son of God who's more glorious than the sun in the sunshine in the heavens. And then in verse 7, the language of the psalm changes pretty dramatically. We go from talking about God 
to the Lord or Yahweh. In other words, we begin to see his personal name show up in these last eight verses. In fact, seven times, seven times in these eight verses, we read the word the Lord or Yahweh. To enjoy a personal relationship with the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of the universe, the relationship that we're intended to have with him, we've got to have a message from him about how this is possible. God's word is essential to knowing and honoring God. You can't know God unless you have a message from God. Because God's son has come, we can know the Lord in a personal way. We can know him by name. We can follow him faithfully. This is by the way, what Jesus did for us in living in obedience as a man to God himself. And we know that all of this is possible because we have the word of God. So this is the connection between verses 1 through 6 and verses 7 through 14, that the Son of God who perfectly glorifies the Father is going to come in obedience to the word of God, and he will come and in saving us, empower us to live as he lived on earth under the power of the Holy Spirit of God, to keep God's word in a similar fashion to that which Jesus himself kept the word. So what we find in verses 7 through 14 are, are four things. To have true life and to live for God's Son, we've got, to radically, we've got to be radically changed by God's word. Now what does the word radically mean? I don't mean like, that's rad, dude. I mean down to the core of our being. There's got to be a root change in our life that is affected by the Word of God. Secondly, we must treasure God's Word. Thirdly, we must be guided by God's Word. And finally, we must submit ourselves to examination. And that's examination by God's Word. And as a result of that examination, which leads us to conclude that we're sinners, trust in Christ, our Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. So first, we must be radically changed by God's Word. In verses 7 through 9, we see several terms referring to various aspects of God's Word. Law, testimony, precepts, commandment, and judgments. I want to briefly consider the various shades of meaning of these terms. The word law, when it's used alongside of these other terms, refers to more than just the five books that Moses wrote, or to the Ten Commandments, but rather it is a comprehensive term for God's revealed will, His teachings, His law. The law is perfect. The word there is blameless. It's whole. It's complete. Wilson says this, the essential wholeness or perfection of the law is the basis of all the other characteristics, that it is sure verse 7, that it is right, verse 8, that it is pure, verse 8, and that it is true, verse 9. God's word is an accurate picture of who God is, what he requires, and how he rescues those who will submit to his king and his son. The law reveals that we're sinners in need of a savior, a savior that the Lord provides when he sends his own son. The word testimony so we've, we've considered the word law, now let's consider the word testimony in verse 8. It speaks of the truthfulness of God's word. The testimony of the Lord is sure or trustworthy. The word there is literally the word amen. When we say amen or so be it or let it be, it's, it's rock solid, it's trustworthy. The word of the Lord is amen. 
Because God has the character and the power to keep his word. 1 John 5, 9 says, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For, his, for the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. Of all the things that the world will tell you that you should stake your life on, there's only one thing that never fails, and that is the sure, the amen, the trustworthy word of God. Precepts and commandment in verse 9, excuse me, verse 8, are similar in meaning. The, the word precept speaks of God's mandates. It's the authority that comes with God's word. That it, He's not just telling you a nice story. It's a story that has an authority that needs to be obeyed and followed and submitted to. What God requires of us, church, is not evil or it's not even morally gray. Notice in verse 8 that it is always right and pure. Right means morally straight. Conforming to God's standard, never wavering to the right or to the left, always perfectly straight. Pure means clean or radiant. Did you know that there's not a, a scintilla of dirt in what God commands? There's nothing dirty about what God gives us in His Word. It's clean, it's pure, it's radiant. Finally, God's judgments, verse 9. These are determinations that He makes with respects to all sorts of human situations. His judgments are true, stable, certain, and righteous or just all together. You see that word all together in verse 9? That's a critically important word. It's, it's one when we study it in our, in our English translations, we might just say, well, of course, they're righteous all together and we move on. But that's a critically important word. What that's saying is we don't get to pick the parts of the Bible that we like and leave behind the parts of the Bible that we'd rather not listen to. We don't get to make a Bible like Thomas Jefferson did, that we cut out all the supernatural stuff that God has to do to make us His own. We have to have a Bible that is the whole Word of God. You take it all together or you take none of it. You can't take just bits and pieces of the Bible and have little proof texts for your life that get you through your week and your day and ignore the fact that we sub must submit to all the counsels and precepts and judgments of God. What God says about abortion and what He says about caring for the poor are equally true no matter which party platform they fit tidily into. God's judgments can't be divided into the ones we accept and the ones we reject because that makes you the judge of God's judgments rather than God's judgments judging you. And for God's word to judge you and to change you, for God's word to change you, you've got to come to God's word as your judge. To know and to do what is right, we must know and keep the righteous judgments of God. Notice the comprehensive impact of God's word upon the one who is willing to submit to its authority. Do you see that in verses 7 and 8? It impacts the soul and the mind and the heart and the eyes. It's a total body transformation that is affected by the word of God. First, it restores or turns the soul. Sinners repent because in reading the word of God, they see that they are not blameless. When they read the blameless law of God, they discover they themselves lack the blameless character of God. As they consider God's word, their soul is moved by the Spirit of God. God uses the word that He wrote to turn 
or transform or restore the soul. Now, in Christ's case, as he's following Psalm chapter 19, verse 7, his soul doesn't need to be regenerated. He is God in the flesh, but his soul is guided. It is turned toward the right every step of the way. And in our case, because we failed to do that, but Christ perfectly obeyed, by his atoning death and resurrection, our soul can be transformed by the Spirit of God who applies what Christ did in perfect obedience to our less than obedient lives. Soul means the entirety of one's life. As Matthew Henry says, to recover man out of his fallen state, there is the need of the Word of God. When we read of God's holiness and our sin and of Jesus, the sinless substitute, the Spirit of God uses His Word to convict us and change us forever. And the transformation is total. It's radical. It's down to the core. It's gradual at times, but it is total. Those who are simple, verse 7, those who come to the Word of God and are genuinely open to listening to it, God makes those people wise. We have mostly grandparents in this crowd this morning. Some of you have students in our student ministry. We are committed at North Roanoke Baptist Church to having a lot of fun in our youth ministry. But we are not committed to just having fun. We are committed to a youth ministry that's about more than popcorn and slushies and games and pizza. We're going to do those things. But those, those things are not the best thing. The best thing is that we would get the Word of God deep down into the hearts of our young people so that it would make them wise. We want 17 and 18-year-olds who leave this church ready for the world, with, armed with the wisdom of God. And it's only the Bible that will do that. It is only consistent, deliberate, intentional exposure to God's Word that will arm you with what you need to know in order to rise above the rampant moral confusion of our age and to avoid making destructive choices. Only by consistent exposure to the Word of God will that happen in the lives of our children and our students, and in your lives as well. When you trust Christ, you get the mind of Christ, and to cultivate the mind of Christ, you must be consistently exposed to the Word of God. God's Word, verse 8, it gives you a whole new way of seeing. It enlightens the eyes. Wilson says that God's Word is like a highway sign, notifying drivers of winding roads or treacherous conditions ahead. To navigate a world that's full of temptation, God has given to us His Word. But we need more than to sort of abstractly know that God's Word is right and that what the world says is wrong. We also need to feel in the core of our being that it is right. It's more than just, well, that's right and that's wrong and I guess I should choose the right today. Something's got to happen on the inside of us. Something's got to happen in our heart. And the good news is God's Word doesn't just enlighten your eyes to what is true and what is false, what is right and what is wrong. It also changes your heart. It rejoices the heart. His precepts, if followed, don't lead to a dull, boring drudgery of a life, but to true joy. Did you know that the number one reason for the lack of joy in the life of a true believer is a failure to keep God's Word? People come in my office all the time for counseling. What's going on in your life? 
And there's all sorts of other reasons that are giving. Well, when's the last time you really got alone with God and read his word and prayed? Oh, man, it's been a long time. When's the last time you cried out to the Lord in utter dependence and said, God, I don't know why my circumstances seem to be berating me on the right and on the left, but I am so thankful that I have life in Christ your Son. And if I've got life in your Son and the resurrection is real, I'm okay. I'm going to keep following you and your word no matter what. That's where the joy is found. That's what rejoices and delights the heart. When we live our lives in light of our circumstances, we'll be up and we'll be down and we'll be up and we'll be down. But the word of God never fails. This is why the psalmist exclaims in Psalm 119, verse 18, Open my eyes that I may behold the wondrous things out of your law. Church, what God says about every aspect of our lives, about our work, our marriage, sex, money, time, priorities, and ultimately about our need for Christ and His kingdom. These things are what bring genuine joy to the heart of a true child of God. And as you delight in God's Word, you will discover that His commandment, verse 8, you see the word commandment? It's in the singular. Everything else is in the plural. But then suddenly we see this word commandment, which is in the singular, because God's word can really be boiled down to one command. Know, believe, submit to, honor, glorify Jesus Christ the Son. Did you know that clarifies just about everything in life? What what can I do in this moment that would bring, bring the greatest glory to Christ? Well, then that's what I'll do. Whatever it's going to be that's going to redound to the greatest glory of Christ, whatever's going to show how amazing Jesus is in my life, that's what I'm going to do. That singular command, that singular priority will open your eyes to how you ought to live. Apart from God's word, we do what is right in our own eyes, Judges 21-25. We go down the path of dark destruction. But God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, Because with His Word, God reorients our entire lives to the singular priority of belonging to Christ and living for Him. When God's Word gets into your mind and your heart, you begin to desire to live in a way that pleases God. This is produced by the fear of the Lord. And do you see that in verse 9? The fear of the Lord is clean. It is pure. It refines. And it also endures forever. Literally, it will always stand. Church, did you know when the world tells you that they're not going to stand in your corner if you stand for Christ, that the fear of man is going to fade away one day, but the fear of the Lord will endure forever? Oh, they can mock, they can threaten, they can even kill, but the God who is in your corner is the God of resurrection power, and the fear of the Lord endures forever forever. You will never go astray in your life by submitting everything you say, do, and think, and assume, and decide to the authority of the Lord whom we must fear. For as Psalm 115, 13 says, he will bless them that fear the Lord, both small and great. We must not only hear the word of God, We must not only be changed by the word of God, but we must also treasure God's word. Verse 10. Verse 10 says this. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey 
and the drippings of the honeycomb. In verse 10, David tells us God's word is more desirable than gold. And then he goes on to say, not just any gold, but vast quantities of refined, pure gold. You believe that? Man, if I could have a mountain of pure, refined gold or God's word, if that was my only choice, give me God's word. The proof of a life that treasures the Lord comes in a life that treasures what God says. You can't treasure Jesus and not treasure His Word. They're inseparable. Oh, I love Jesus with all my heart, but I never, I never incline my heart to His testimonies, and I never treasure His Word. Psalm 119.36 says, Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. The more you immerse yourself in the Word of God, the, more, the less of yourself you want to exalt and glorify. Selfishness and steadiness in the Word of God cannot coexist. When we treasure God's Word, God rids us of the idolatry of self and replaces it with a life of worship of His Son. Look again at verse 10. First He tells us it's greater than gold, and then He tells us this, it is sweeter than honey. It's not just enough to have God's Word around on a shelf. I think Pastor Ethan has like 38 Bibles. He loves God's Word. But did you know the evidence that Ethan loves God's Word isn't in how many Bibles he has? It's in his desire to be exposed to the words that are on the inside of it. To know the sweetness and sustaining power of God, God's Word has to get down into our minds and our hearts. Jesus believed this, did he not? He's in the wilderness for 40 days and Satan comes and tempts him and he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. He says, it is written, man will not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We've got to treasure the word of God by consuming it. Even when faced with the responsibility of delivering a hard word to God's people, both Jeremiah and Ezekiel literally eat God's word. The prophet of God. Did you know it's not easy to be a pastor some days? Because the calling to be a pastor is not just to make you feel good. I like to make you feel good. I like to hug you and pat you on the shoulder and tell you you're wonderful. But when you get trapped in a pattern of sin or of ridiculous complaining or something's going on in your life and you need to hear a word from God, sometimes my responsibility is to tell you something that your flesh does not want to hear. And if I don't do that, then I haven't loved God or you. And that's not easy. I don't like doing that part of my job. Ezekiel didn't like that part of his job. Jeremiah didn't like that part of his job. He didn't like being stuffed. Jeremiah didn't like being stuffed down in a hole by the people of God for telling them the truth that God was going to judge them because they were sinning and rebelling and not listening. But he had something that he desired and treasured more than the affection of God's people. And it was obedience and faithfulness to the Lord his God. And so when everything around him was crashing, when no one was listening, when everyone was rebelling, this is what Ezekiel says about the word of God that he ate. He said to me, son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll which I am giving you. Then I ate it and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. Is the word of God sweeter to you, church? than even your most prized earthly possession or earthly relationship. What would you trade 
for the word of God. To have and to live the life that God has for us, church, we've got to taste and see the goodness of the Lord. And the only way to taste and see the goodness of the Lord is by consuming His sweet word. Thirdly, we've got to be guided by God's word. Apart from Christ, what we say, do, and think is set against God. Paul says the world is filled with sinners who are enemies of the cross of Christ. The end of their life is destruction. Their God, their God is their appetite. Their glory is in their shame. They set their mind on earthly things. Those who are opposed to God are ruled not by the scriptures, but by their sin and their feelings, their emotions. The song of their lives is this. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. I might sing that in a Cheryl Crow voice in the second service. Maybe. But church, it's a lie. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad is a lie from the world. Just because it makes you, makes you happy doesn't make it right. There's a lot of things that make your flesh happy that have nothing to do with honoring Christ and obeying His Word. Those who do not hear and heed God's Word and submit to Christ the King, and instead they keep living for whatever feels best in their naturally sinful lives, they end up eternally disappointed. Jesus says several times in the Gospels, they have already received their reward. The word of the Lord warns, or better translated in verse 11, it instructs the servant of the Lord. When we consume God's word, we're able to see the lies and the traps of the world, and we're able to live in the presence of the Lord. Did you see that in verse 11? There's a reward that comes through obedience to God's word. And what is the reward? We've already seen it in Psalm 16. It is to know God himself, in whom there are pleasures and joys forevermore. We don't have to make the Word of God practical. If you want to make your pastor have a little tizzy, just say, Preacher, I just, I just need you to make it practical. There's nothing more practical in life, Paul says, than sound doctrine. Seeing the world as it is in God's eyes and being equipped to live as God requires so that we can know His presence in a world that is hostile toward Him and we can live for His glory, there's nothing more practical than that. I can't make it any more practical than know Jesus, honor Jesus in all that you say, do, think. That is practical. Whatever's going to bring the most glory to Jesus, whatever's going to show He's Lord of my life, what He says about my finances, what He says about my marriage, what He says about my parenting, what He says about my church life, whatever it is in His Word, that's what I want to do. That's practical. Are y'all here? All right. So beware the one who tells you that they've got to spend a lot of time making God's Word practical. It's practical. It's already practical. Number four. We must submit our lives to being examined by God's word. And we must trust in Christ, our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. Beginning in verse 11, the subject shifts from the word of God to our response to the Lord. There is a critical implication here 
that is not spelled out in the text, but it's one that, that we can't go without catching. Here, here's the implication. How we respond to God's word is how we respond to God. How you respond to what God says in his word is your response to God. We can't say, I've never cracked a Bible or heard a sermon in months, and also say, my relationship with the Lord is great. Oh, it's 100% fine. I haven't seen the Word of God in a long time. I haven't heard a sermon in a long time. I haven't meditated on the Word in a long time. You, you can't, those two things are impossible to go together. You have to have consistent exposure to the Word of God to have a white-hot, consistent relationship with the God of the Word. Faith in God and a knowledge of the God revealed in the Bible go hand in hand. It's not a blind faith. It's not an uninformed faith. It's a faith in the God of the Bible. They are inseparable. In verses 11 and excuse me, 12 through 14, we see that God's word changes, excuse me, challenges God's child. The reason that people often walk away from church and Christ and the word is because they bump up against something that God says that challenges them. When I study the Word of God, I expect to be challenged by it. I expect it to shape my soul and to inform my mind and to change how I think about the world because this is the mind of God to me. And a healthy church should expect the same thing. When we engage the Word of God, we should expect to be refreshed and shaped in all that we do and say and assume. When we come to the Word, we are exposed to the righteousness of God. And in beholding the righteousness of God, we begin to understand the greatness of our sin. Our, our lives are so infected with sin. Sin that comes in a variety of types that we see here in Psalm chapter 19. Look at verse 12. We have errors or inadvertent sins that we don't even see. David asks, who can discern his errors? Discern means to understand or separate out mentally. The humility in this statement is incredible. Here's what David is saying. God, even when I'm doing some good things, I know there's some stuff mixed in there that is less than your standard. It's less than glorifying to you. And all I can do, God, is throw myself upon your mercy. God, who can know his errors? Who can see the stuff that he does that he doesn't even see that falls short of your glory? Secondly, David moves from his unknown sins to his hidden faults in verse 12. These are sins that are kept secret in the heart and in the mind of the sinner. Sins like coveting. Sins like unforgiveness and lust or bitterness. And then David escalates finally to presumptuous sins. Do you see that in verse 13? So we've moved from sins that I'm committing that I don't even know about to sins that I'm committing that I'm trying to hide to now sins that, you know what, I'm just going to do what I want to do. I'm just going to be rebellious these are willful, intentional, deliberate, flagrant acts of, of rebellion. Sins like abandoning your spouse. Sins like cheating on your taxes. Sins like telling someone where they can go or what they can do. Sins like, for children, doing the exact opposite of what your parents asked you to do. Clear line rebellion. I don't know how to illustrate this very well, but Sometimes I play basketball with Pastor Hope. And occasionally, you know, when you play basketball, there's really two kinds of fouls. 
right? There's the foul that's incidental contact. You were trying to block the shot and you didn't get the ball, but you got his hand just a little bit. That's sort of pay-to-play kind of fouling. It just happens. It happens naturally in the sport of basketball. You didn't mean to get him on the hand. You were trying to steal the ball. But there are other fouls that are called flagrant fouls. And these are fouls that are committed that you know, when you know you've lost, you know you've been burned, you know you've been toasted like I often do to Hobe. I cross him up and get around him. And sometimes, rather than letting me score the bucket, he just grabs my shoulders and pulls me down. That's a flagrant foul. That's two free throws and the possession of the ball, my brother. We're all guilty of flagrant fouls in our relationship with God. Left to our own devices, we would be like Adam and Eve, and God would say, just don't eat that one fruit, and we would run right up to that tree and eat it in a New York minute. This is what God's Word does, church. It exposes us as naked before a holy God. And it leads us to run to Him in humility and dependence. David does not say, now that I know your word, I'm good. No, he says, God, I can't even see some of my sins. God, sometimes I try to hide my sin, so please acquit me. Please forgive me, clear me of any penalty. Release me from sin, oh God. Release me from the death that I owe, verse 12. God, your word has shown me a desire to rebel against you, and I beg you, Lord, literally, it's a command to God, keep me back from these things. Lord, I don't want to sin. God, I don't want to be ruled. Do you see that word in verse 13? I don't want sin to rule over me. Rather, God, I want to be ruled by you. Then I will be blameless. Then I will be cleared of great transgression. The word transgression is the most severe word for sin in the entire Bible. It means breaking a pact, a betrayal. It means intentionally crossing a line that God says not to cross. But how is it possible for these errors and these sins and these acts of rebellion and these transgressions to be acquitted? How in the world can we be acquitted of betraying the Lord through Jesus Christ, God's Son? That's how. Through Christ the Son who took our sins upon Himself. The sins that we don't see, the sins we hide, our presumptuous sins and our great transgression. Jesus took all these things on Himself so that we could be cleared of them forgiven, freed from death through his resurrection when we confess our sin and our need for him and resolve to be his people by anchoring our lives in his word. And look at verse 14. When that happens, when the word of God leads to repentance and faith in Christ, we get more than right behavior. We aren't just a bunch of do-gooders. We actually gain a right mouth and a right heart. Do you see that? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord. The meditation of the heart means the murmuring or the sound or the music of the heart. Suddenly our heart goes from if it makes me happy, it can't be that bad, to if it glorifies Christ, that is my aim. Whatever it takes for Jesus to be lifted up, that's what I want to do. This morning, If you know that you belong to Christ, but the Word of God has not been your treasure, I want to encourage you to ask God to give you a renewed passion for His Word so that not just the outward actions that you do, but the inward music of your heart would be glorifying to the Son of God. And if you don't know this King, 
If you don't know this Jesus to whom the word of God so plainly speaks and prophesies and testifies, I invite you to come and give your life to Christ today in whose hand there are pleasures and joys forevermore. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we need you. We thank you that your word is truth. We thank you, God, that we have a sure reliable, clean guide in a world that is dead set against you. And God, we pray in Jesus' name that you would give us a greater passion for your word, a greater passion for your truth. And God, that we would glorify you in what we say and in what we do because we have been saturated in your saving word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.